Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A new podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to another episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast for anyone interested in how and why television gets made. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant working out of London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, an international format consultant based in the UK. And I don't know how we're doing this, Justin, but once again, we've got a fantastic special guest for our interview slot. This time, it's the teacher, presenter, and University Challenge star, Bobby Siegel. It's a really fun and revealing chat, so if you want to understand the mind of a pro quitter, do stick around for that. Uh, This is our third show, and we wanted to thank you for the lovely feedback we've had so far via our Twitter handle, at TV Show Podcast, or our email address, contact at tvshowandtell.com. We've had a lovely email from Paul Tucker at the School of Business and Creative Industries at the University of the West of Scotland, who says that he loves the podcast and he's told the students in his Developing Factual Formats class about it so that they can listen. I'm 100% sure that they're all going to listen. I think that's what students do, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, they do exactly what they're told. Yeah. Uh, We've also had some queries coming in, two of which we'll be answering later in this show in our Ask the Doctor and Hot Topic segments. But first, it's time for our roundup. So what's been catching your eye this week, Justin? Well, I noticed that ITV are casting for a new hybrid show, Music and Dating. Uh, The show's called Romeo and Duet. I, I see what they've done there. It's very clever. It's not very clever, actually. I think it's a terrible title, but there we go. Basically, it involves singletons who are performing karaoke to show off their assets. Um, and then the people who go through win a chance to go on a karaoke date with another singer. So it's sort of like the singing version of that dancing show with Ashley Banjo. Yeah. I mean, what it reminded me of, actually, was a, a, a Korean show called Love at First Song, where you have two singletons and they each learn half of a duet and they don't actually meet until they sing the duet together in the studio. And then Mm. you discover whether love is love at first song. It was all set to be remade in the US and then the pandemic obviously put a stop to that and lots of other things. The reason I mention it is that the showrunner for that is our friend Simon Lithgow. So we'll hopefully find out more about that show in, in a later episode of TV Show and Tell. Great. Now, I have a question for you, Justin. TV is the largest media sector in the world. What is number two? Wow. I can only assume that it's video games. Yes, it is. Compared to the exposure that film and music gets, the coverage of video games on television is appalling, frankly. Well, Channel 4 seems to have agreed, and they've brought back a 1990s format called Games Master, ah, right. which was a, a mixture of uh, news features and experts or celebrities doing various gaming challenges. And um, I watched it, and it was faithful to the original show in that um, they had a, a witty Scottish presenter, Tick. They had a, a strange and unusual location, Tick. They had like a sort of, um, instead of Patrick Moore, they had Trevor MacDonald as the um, slightly wacky casting for the Games Master. So he's like the giant head. 
So he's like a sort of comp- yeah, a giant, giant computerized figurehead that um, nominally sets the challenges. And he's jolly good at it, actually. So, um, yes, it's been a very faithful and quite well-received um, remake. But why? The newer gamers, say, in their teens and 20s these days, won't remember the original show. Well, I suppose what they've done is that they've released it first on E4's YouTube channel. So I guess the purpose of that is in order to identify that new audience. The thing that I find slightly strange about it is that you've just described the the lineup there. That's three blokes and one woman, which doesn't really reflect gaming demographics, does it? No, it's much more 50-50 than people think. Mm. I actually looked at the ratings and it clocked 100,000 viewers in terms of uh, television broadcast which was about half what was expected in that slot. However, it did get 80,000 views on YouTube. Hmm. So does that mean actually <laughs> in the in the round it, it did perform as well as it should have done? Yeah, well, I think it certainly suggests that it's finding or beginning to find that younger audience that it needs to find in order to survive. We'll see how those ratings trend in future shows. So something that I've seen in the last few weeks is Handmade, Britain's Best Woodworker. Obviously, this is in the tradition of baking and pottery and sewing and interior design and flower arranging and and all the rest of it. And it is essentially the Great British Bake Off with wood. And it's presented by a former Bake Off host. Can you guess which one? Sue Perkins? No. Mel Gedroich. See, I only asked you that because I don't actually know how to pronounce her name. So <laughs> I thought I'd get you to say it instead. Yes, it, it is pretty much the same. It is it, it's charming. You know, I, I, very clearly the word handmade in the title is uh, pressing that nostalgia button and that sense for authenticity and crafting, of course, which is so huge. And, of course, you may remember that Sky had a, a show called The Chop, Britain's top woodworker, uh, which was axed earlier this year when it was alleged that one of the contestants had a Nazi symbol tattooed on his face. The chop was itself chopped. Yes. Okay, well, that's the news for this week. And now it's time to go over for our interview with this week's special guest. So here's your starter for 10, which maths teacher, broadcaster, author and library champion set Twitter on fire during 2017's University Challenge? Oh, nobody's buzzed in. I should have provided some buzzers. It's Bobby Seagull. Can I buzz in? Emmanuel Seagull. It's me. It's me. Welcome. Now, I introduced you as Bobby Seagull. In fact, your first name is Jay and your family mm. name is Jose. So how come Bobby Seagull? So in my family, do the, the easy one first. We have four boys. Uh, my parents are uh, ethnically originally from India, a place called Kerala in southwest India. And there's a sort of tradition where the, fir- the first name of the, ch- of the sort of boys, the same, yeah, the boys in the family will take on the same name. So my dad gave us all the first name Jay. So J, Dave, J, Bobby, J, John, J, Thomas. So, but the surname is more interesting because in an alternate universe, it would be Emmanuel Jose. Um, but my dad uh, read a book growing up called Jonathan Livingston Seagull and sold like millions of copies in the in the sort of early 70s. And have you heard of this like little inspirational novella? Oh, absolutely. I, and I remember how big it was. 
So we sort of know what seagulls are normally like. They're really annoying. All they do is like pinch your chips. Uh, and all they do in, in the book is have a subsistence life, searching for fish and they sleep the next day. But Jonathan Livingston found a greater meaning to his life. And she said the wings, they can be for subsistence, but they can actually help us soar the skies. And he learned this meaning of flight and actually tried to teach other birds, other seagulls. And my dad loved the idea of trying to learn something, educate yourself, and then inspiring others. So he gave us the surname Seagull. So it's like, it's a totally made up name, but on my birth certificate, J. Bobby Seagull is there. Seagull. I'm a bit annoyed with myself because I actually had on Only Connect just the other week, a question about things that had all the same name. So if I just read a bit further, I could have used you as one of the clues. Oh, yes, 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 the, <laughs> no, the hard clue. <laughs> So we had that reference to uh, University Challenge just now. Um, obviously, viewers came to know you first when you captained the Emmanuel College Cambridge team. Were you already a quizzer at that point? I'll be embarrassed to admit, before I was captain of my Cambridge team on University Challenge, I never watched an episode of it. Like, obviously, I'm fully <laughs> aware of the cultural importance. And, you know, my family, when we're watching dinner, we know what the theme tune is. We know Paxman's the host. We roughly know how it works. We'll see it for a couple of seconds. But then, invariably, you turn up on a question on inorganic chemistry. And I'm like, I don't know that. And you just, you switch over. But I, I've always read. I've always loved learning. So my, my family, every Saturday afternoon, my dad would take myself and my brother's East Ham Library. We'd sit there for hours reading all sorts of books like Aztec Civilization, Victorian Engineering, the fiction of Tolkien. So I've been for years and years developing a love of learning and knowledge. And whenever we did like at, at work, like a work corporate quiz or a school quiz or some sort of anything that's like a knowledge related event, I would always do well. But I'd never really channeled it towards quizzing. It's only when I went to Cambridge as a mature student for my uh, teacher training, my master's, my PhD, I saw that poster saying, you know, um, there's a picture of Paxman's face on our student uh, body room, like, oh, do you want to apply for I'm like, yeah, I did quite well on the student quiz. I may as well have a go. So I'm now like, Monday night, you can't pull me away. If anyone wants to disturb me on Monday night, like <laughs> 8.30 to 9 is finished. We're, we're gone. And even 8 to 9, I still want to watch Only Connect. And ideally, I want to get back in time for Mastermind. But now it's like a part of my life. Okay, funny enough, I'm a single guy. But if I need, if I met someone, a partner, they would have to watch Quizzy Monday. Otherwise, it's, it's game over. They can't <laughs> They can't be part of my life and not have Quizzy Monday. So you're like more like a generalist reader. What do you think of these people that sort of are more like, I'm going to learn a list of all 210 national capitals and I'm going to learn all the chemical symbols off by heart and, and things like that? Because that, that's like a, a very hardcore, mm. but, but sometimes profitable approach to quizzing. My method of learning is generally by, by osmosis, absorbing it from different, read a book on science, then maybe look at, watch a video on the periodic table. So like slowly over time, you through enjoyment, but obviously it is more efficient, like I'm a teacher. My students sometimes say, oh, sir, if we just look at something again and again, Pythagoras theorem and the quadratic formula, we will learn it. And I say, actually, children, you do have to spend some time committing things to memory. So I definitely appreciate what they do. <laughs> <laughs> so on University Challenge, when I can't answer the questions, I start looking at the team play. Um, and I'm always interested. You've got four very competitive, high achievers competing mm -hmm. together. I noticed uh, watching you that you seem to be a very collaborative captain. So what kind of preparation did you do as a team for each mm. episode? So once I got selected to be captain of the Emmanuel team, I made sure that as a team, we sat down, we understood each other's areas of interest. We created like a little spreadsheet um, looking at past seasons and made sure that things like 
US presidents, at least two of us covered it, periodic table, Dickens novel. So we did that. We created a spreadsheet because we wanted to try and be as methodical as we can. As whilst Universe Challenge says there's no syllabus, there's no canon, there isn't, but there are generally things that tend to turn up. Um, so we've strategically allocated topics and we used to go to uh, quizzer practice in Cambridge twice a week. We'd watch Universe Challenge, um, we'd try practice quiz books. We go, and we also did things which are probably not seen as as efficient if you're trying to learn knowledge. Uh, but I think great for team environment. We team bonding. We go to pub quizzes together. We went to the science museum. So I realized that one, you need to be technically good, otherwise you're going to get eliminated. But secondly, you want everyone to buy into what the team is about. And our team was about. We might not have perhaps you know established quiz bowlers, but we're going to work hard as a unit. And I think that came across in our the way we perform because you could tell even if you got things wrong, you're like oh. Like there's one great question. I remember like we were like, oh Tom, you discussed this on the train up here, and it wasn't like planned. We didn't like think, oh, let's make ourselves a name on telly. We just really were just ourselves, and that was our real spirit coming across. Excellent, yeah. Well, that spirit did come across. Um, so when you were when you walked into the studio, obviously you're into quite an alien environment compared to a quiz in a college library or something like that. What uh, surprised or, or interested you about the process of university challenge being made? In my first year at Cambridge, I did take part in the Quiz Society and my friends were at Peterhouse, Cambridge. And if we all know Peterhouse, they won University Challenge. So I think having gone to watch every single one of their matches as their friend definitely meant that when I went second time round as a captain of my came, my college's team, it, it gave me that assurance that I know what it's like to be in, okay, maybe not as a quizzer, but even the things, simple things like the train journey there, the studio, what does it look like? Who's the floor manager? What does the set look like? And but I think that meant that I was able to give my team sort of a, and they were quite young, they were like 19, 18, give them a really solid grounding of what to expect. Um, and I think funny enough, that first day in our first match, we nearly turned up late as a team because I finished lectures early. So me and the reserve went up early in the morning, but three of our team, they had classes. So they went and we were playing in an evening match. And they nearly ended up late because we, I mean, when I mean late, like they, ITV studios were looking at finding another team to replace us. So when they turned up to the studio, they were hot and sweaty and nervous. And probably in our first match, the first two thirds of the match, we were just not in it as a team. So no future team that I support or advise will ever make the mistake of just leaving it to the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> Do you actually get involved with like uh, some teams, I think that's particularly Manchester, have um, veterans who, who go and coach the sort of the new intake do you ever do any of that yes i still do so with my oxford college lady margaret hall who qualified for the first time ever in the paxman era a couple of years ago which i supported and then the emmanuel team who actually qualified now um since since i've since i've had my stint three times in the previous four years and all of them in quarterfinal stints so the first three years i had an extensive significant involvement in selecting the team helping support them this year's team actually I met them weird enough in their, in their freshers year. They came along to one of my talks and they said, oh, should we apply? And I, and I was trying to take a step back, but now they've dragged me back involved. <laughs> <laughs> so University Challenge led to your friendship with Eric Monkman. Um, you've presented two series together so far. So what is it about Monkman's brain that fires your synapses? Oh, it's a great question. So we were actually friends before recording. So people often say, oh, did the BBC put you two together and manufactured a friendship? But we were actually friends in our time at Cambridge through quizzing. Uh, and I think partly is because the Wilson College Cambridge team were a graduate team. And I'm, I was a graduate student myself. So I, obviously, I love my teammates and my 
Emmanuel team, but they were very young and we were very good friends and still are very good friends. But the Wilson team, because they're older, I felt like I could relate to them a bit more. Some of them had had previous jobs before they went back to university. Um, and Eric and I, I think we bonded over the fact that we liked quizzing. And then we spent so much time together quizzing that you become friends because, you know, you have the debriefs after the quizzes. Um, when you're getting questions right, I was like, Eric, how did you know that? But he asked me, Bobby, how did you know about sport? And that grew and developed. To be honest, we, we weren't quite expecting the response. I think what probably made ours a bit more distinct was both of us emerged separately, but as very distinctive personalities. Like Eric was like barking out answers, getting loads right and dragging his team through. And then myself, different. Like I was quite energetic. I got my fair share of starters, but like, the way that I enthused my team and if I got things wrong. And then, so I think it was the second match in particular where I trended on social media, like hashtag Seagulls trending. And the BBC did a tweet out saying, is this the happiest ever contestant on University Challenge? <laughs> and then the, and the following morning, they did a tweet saying, in case you missed it, everyone fell in love with Bobby Seagull. And it was just like, I just had a good time. Um, and it came across as myself. So actually in, the, in, in my series itself, I had people call it, calling my Cambridge College television exec saying, oh, we'd love to chat with you about some ideas that we have for a quiz show or a math show or a history show. But then obviously the, the most obvious match was me and Eric because we got on well. We interacted with each other on social media together and against each other. So you had these these two BBC popular science series about genius invention where yes. you went around the UK um, looking at famous sites where mm. um, particular things have been created. Um, what was it like having what I imagine to be your dream UK geeky road trip televised? Oh, my God. It's honestly like because when the BBC, so initially before that, I think the BBC road tested us. That was the unintended pun with a Radio 4 <laughs> show called Monkman and Seagull's Polymathic Adventure. And the BBC loved that. Uh, and they thought actually there's definitely some grounds for this this um, this combination. And on the road trip, they literally just said, "Where do you want to go? Here's some again." Then we tell them, and they'll say which are feasible or not. And now you go off in the car. We will get you to meet some people. You just chat about what you want. Some of it will be uneditable, some will be unusable, but some things will emerge. Season two a little bit more polished, but I think the joy of it was you literally had two people who enjoyed each other's company, loved learning and knowledge, and were on that journey. So it quite literally was a fly on the wall. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's what people loved about it. It was an authenticity about the, that show, um, not scripted. And honestly, the second series is interesting, though, definitely had more elements of polish because both of us were more confident. The, the BBC by then knew what they wanted. It was more structured. In fact, series two was looking at Britain's science and history chronologically from 1750 to 1900 where series one was just go to some places have a little chat but i, I love the sense of we could just talk about what we wanted and sometimes i forgot that they were they were in in with us because a couple of times i was driving the car there and i was saying i'm feeling a bit sleepy and i get a call over from there like get off the road right now you're not feeling sleepy so like it, it, was, it, was, it was i love the element of it was just us really did the the editing process shock you because you sort of go we spent like seven hours around that lighthouse or whatever, and then on screen it's like four minutes. Yeah, I, again, it, when I entered, when I did the first series in particular, it was our first ever proper television series. Element of naivety, which I think though adds to the, the the sort of joy of the show, but there were things we'd talk at length about, I don't know, counterfactual histories, and they would say that's, you know, for a half an hour program, you can't spend eight minutes talking about counterfactuals. You need some actual facts and, and a knowledge um, so they can be a little 30 second snippet. Um, but it's maybe more cognizant. Again, what I think sometimes people in television not lose their way, they become very performative. They think, what, what does the camera want? 
And there is the element now I know, like, what are they looking for? So it makes my time more efficient. But I love the sense of we could just talk about anything. Excellent. So I know you're a keen uh, West Ham supporter. Yes. And I noticed that you brought your love of football into television uh, when you took part in Celebrity Mastermind uh, with your topic, England at the World Cup, which you won, I believe. Yes. Um, so if we imagine a Venn diagram with football <laughs> in one circle and maths yes. in the other circle, yes. what's in that? What's in the intersection? Oh, wow. I mean, th- that literally is football intersection maths is is bobby's sweet spot of joy it's where i am floating on my proverbial uh cloud nine again i've always loved football as a child i'm from east ham east london uh, if i was taller i'm only like five four and a half five 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 with nice shoes <laughs> um if i was a better if i was a better footballer i would, I would i'd love to become a professional footballer but clearly it didn't work out but i've always loved numbers and maths in fact the reason i got into maths as a child was through do you remember the football stickers the panini ones the sticker books. I used to collect them, uh, and and all these sticker books were treasure troves. Information had like the names, ages, heights, goal scored, left foot, right foot, and I took all this data like in the early mid nineties and input into a massive Excel spreadsheet. So when friends would have conversations about football players, I genuinely would go interrogate my spreadsheet, come back the next day with the objective analysis, and it didn't <laughs> make me popular, but it showed my friends how powerful maths and stats can be. So for me, football and maths is my dream combo. And even actually in my telly series, I always try to squeeze in my claret and blue. Maths as a subject on TV is is not one of the things that you, you see very regularly. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the era of Johnny Ball's Think of a Number and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, what do you think could be the way of getting more maths on, on television itself? Johnny Ball actually is a, he's someone that I, I wasn't aware of till University Challenges. When I was on it, people were tweeting, oh, Bobby could be the new Johnny Ball. I'm like, I don't know who Johnny Ball is. I know who Zoe Ball is. Um, <laughs> later on, actually, I ended up interviewing him for my one of my maths podcast series. And he's actually, yeah, I think in terms of communication, he knows how to get people excited about maths. But with young people, it's about trying to work out how do you engage them? This broadcast obviously has the reputation, the, the, the kudos. And I, and I still think a lot of people that People that work in YouTube, like I've got friends that are YouTubers, they still like the idea of having something on mainstream. It's almost like then they, they can tell their parents, you know, what's the silly nonsense you're doing on YouTube at home? Oh, but dad, I also do some stuff with Channel 4 or Channel 5. So people do consume more and more things on YouTube and young people on Instagram, TikTok in particular. Um, so it's a way of trying to combine both because I think television is not going to disappear. The way we consume stuff, the linear stuff, at a specific time, things like, that's why I love Universe Challenge. People do consume it when they want later on, but there's an element of that joint uh, consumption. All of us at 8.30 on a Monday night are watching it and we can chat away on Twitter, chat with our friends tomorrow morning at the water cooler at school. With maths, again, my students, when I ask them, to be honest, they don't really watch television. They watch television for live sport when England play or Champions League. But for things that are, are not meant to be watched at a specific time, not live, they'll either sometimes consume an iPlayer, but often they're like YouTube or social media. So I think it's a combination of trying to use both. Like, I, I would love to have a, a mainstream broadcast presence. One, because like I've grown up, again, my family, there are two things that we love growing up. One is we've read so much. We used to go to the library every Saturday, get a shopping trolley full of books. And second, we watched lots of popular television. Oh my God, if I just not watch Neighbours, I could have, like, I worked out, I could have probably learned like three or four languages instead of watching Neighbours every day from the age of like five <laughs> to 21. I mean, Neighbours, I loved you, but I could have done something more useful with my time. So I think there's a, definitely a sweet spot where you've got a broadcast presence because 
broadcast still is, I think still got the kudos about it and you can use it as a platform to get onto Netflix, Amazon Prime. And that's what I'd love to do because then you've got an audience that's international because maths is a universal language. People study in Brazil, in Bangladesh, in Burundi. Um, and there's definitely audiences out there that love the idea of having something packaged in a nice, engaging, fun way. And television is a great way to try and try out these things like in high budget productions. And there's more from Bobby later in the show. But now it's time for another Ask the Doctor segment, where we challenge our format doctor, Justin Scruggy, to answer any queries you've got about the TV industry. And we're grateful to Mark Harrington, who emailed us to ask the following. He says, I've been overthinking a fairly trivial matter for a while. I wonder if you could provide the answer. On the Great British Bake Off, the contestants all wear the same clothes throughout an episode, despite the episode being filmed over two days. I suspect there's an obvious reason for this, but I can't work it out. They openly admit on the show that it's filmed over two days, so it's not as if they're trying to preserve the illusion that each episode is actually shot on a single day. So, Justin, what sort of topics does this bring up? Well, this brings up the topic of continuity, where we have to ensure that things that are shot out of sequence match up when we get into the edit. Mm -hmm. So, for example, way back when on the Crystal Maze, I remember spending every pickup day taking different coloured jackets on and off because my sleeves had to match the contestants in the Crystal close-ups. So just explain what the pickup day was. So the pickup day... We filmed the game from beginning to end on the first day with the, with the full crew. And then on the second day, we went back and filmed a lot of close-ups of the crystal so that we could tell the story of the game in the best possible way. And that was usually a smaller crew and myself wearing different jackets, putting my arm into shot and picking up a crystal. But why didn't they have that shot of an arm grabbing the crystal originally when they were playing the game the first time? It was simply because the cells in the crystal maze uh, are relatively small. We already had two or three cameras in there as it was, and we simply couldn't have more cameras inside the cells to pick up every single shot. Okay. So I find this, this whole thing about costume and clothing uh, quite an interesting thing. Mm. Um, it's something that they've used recently on the Cube. So Philip Schofield wears the same suit on every episode of the Cube so that they can slot together the various games that people have in whatever order. They tried to make sure that... Um, the final game of the show coincided with the end of the program. Right. So if you had a long game at the start of the show, you would need to try and find a fairly short game where somebody lost or quit early to fill in the remainder of the show. Mm. So by keeping him in the same outfit throughout the whole filming process, you could basically join together whatever games in whatever order without having to worry about the fact that Philip Schofield had a yellow tie on in the first yeah. half of the show and a yeah. blue tie in the second well, half. Well, story is incredibly important to game shows, uh, and increasingly so, actually. You are looking always for the most compelling narrative. And, you know, the days when it was just, you know, some guy called Dave uh, from Bognor Regis, um, he played the game and he left, uh, are long gone. And people want and expect a great deal more story from a game. 
So you th for that reason, you want the maximum amount of flexibility in the edit. So Mark actually suggested a couple of theories to his own question, mm. uh, which were, one, Research has shown that viewers would subconsciously find it distracting if the contestants changed outfits halfway through the episode. Now, I think with a show like Bake Off, where you have, what, something like 12 contestants at the start mm. of the series, it's like a lot of people to try and get mm. your head around. I think that might be one of the reasons, because you, you just about got the handle on all of these different people about, well, I know that's the, the lady with the flowery shirt, and that's the, the tall guy with the blue jumper on. And then if on day two, they all come in with completely mm. different costumes on, I think that will be a bit discombobulating. And Mark's second theory is, it's to assist with editing, e.g. if a baker is having a fairly easy day on day two, they can edit in footage of them having a bit of a flap on day one to create some artificial drama. I don't think they would do that on, on Bake Off because I think the challenges and the setup of the equipment and mm. and all that kind of thing would be just too different to get away with something like that. Well, it's certainly true. I've worked on shows where we've collected what we call a B-roll, um, so like a, a library of close-up shots we've picked up along the way where people are expressing different emotions or wiping their brow or looking daggers at somebody else. And we stick all of that onto the B-roll so that when we come to cut an episode, if we don't have a shot of somebody expressing an emotion that they are in fact expressing, we've got something to slot in. So that's not faking things. That's just using visual grammar to make the story make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I actually asked an insider who works on the show, and I'm very grateful for them suggesting um, something else which I hadn't thought of, which is apparently the contestants do lots of interviews throughout the two days because I'm guessing there's a lot of downtime when you're waiting for your focaccia to do a second prove. <laughs> so they take them out of the um, the tent and just give them loads and loads of interview questions. So by having the same outfit means that you can magpie bits of these interviews without having to worry about was it a day one interview or was it a day two interview. I went to a recording a couple of years ago of the ITV show this time next year. So in that show, as you remember, somebody, a member of the public comes on the show. They talk to Davina about a personal ambition they have. They go through a door marked this year. They come back through a door marked next year. And the question is, have they achieved their ambition? Now, the whole idea is that a year has passed in an instant. And between the two doors, Davina walks from one side of the set to the other. In reality, 12 months have passed. So, of course, she has to be wearing the same clothes that she was wearing a year ago. Vina mm. is a big fitness freak and whatever, but I do remember her telling the audience um, how difficult it was to ensure that she could fit into the same clothing that she was wearing 12 months previously. I also remember we worked on a show called Codex, which was a history quiz for Channel 4. And didn't we have an issue where we had to do a sort of a, a second take with somebody several weeks after? Oh my God! Yes. Oh no! This was this. It is a good story, actually. So the contestant was a wrestler. He came on the show with dark hair, and then we had to reshoot the ending of the show because with uh, with that show we were chasing the light all the time. The dawn had come up. And all the lighting was wrong. So a few months later, we had to reshoot the end of the show. And during that time, he had changed his wrestling persona 
and he now had platinum <laughs> blonde hair. So he arrived in the studio with platinum blonde hair as opposed to dark brown hair, which didn't match at all. Now, getting somebody's hair from platinum blonde back to brown and then getting it back to platinum, I can't tell you the amount of chemicals we put on his head to achieve that. Um, but yeah, that was that was my, you're quite right, that was my absolute continuity nightmare. So there you are. Uh, thanks for your query, Mark. I hope you can sleep a little easier now. If you've got a question about the TV business that you'd like us to cover, please email us, contact at tvshowandtell.com. And now let's go back to this week's special guest, quizzer Bobby Siegel. So this year, um, you became a quiz expert and trapper on the Answer Trap. So tell us about the show and if you could talk us through a, a typical trap and how you went about setting it. The concept is uh, there are teams, uh, two teams of two, and their job is to, they compete to sort answers into various categories. Um, so an example could be get, they get a board uh, three by three, nine answers, but they might give you two options. They could either be Pokemon characters or characters from Greek mythology or answer traps. So imagine I gave you some answers for that. Uh, let's say I said Pikachu, Cerberus, uh, the Kraken, Minotaur, Lickitung. And then the contestants will be there going, ah, oh, Pikachu, that's definitely a Pokemon. That's still a Pokemon. And they'll allocate it there. Or they'll pick up some money, ding, some money. And they're like, ah, oh, Minotaur. Yeah, I've definitely heard of that. That sounds, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not Pokemon. No, no, no. It's definitely, it's definitely Greek. And they go, I think that's Greek. Good. And they're like, um, okay, what about the Kraken? And they get more money. And then the Kraken, okay, I reckon Kraken. I've seen that film. Is it Return of the Titans, The Clash of the Titans? That's, that's definitely Greek myth. Beep, beep, beep. It's a trap. The Kraken's not from Greek myth. And then they'll reveal myself, Answer Trapper, or Only Connect Champion Frank Paul. And we will reveal the workout. Anita Varney, the host, will say which of us is a trapper. And I'll, and I'll say, ah, it doesn't me. Um, and I'll explain to them why the Kraken actually was an anachronism. It's actually from Swedish mythology, 16th, 17th century. But the film had anachronized, if this is a word, into a, into a Greek Hollywood film. So, people, so it's almost like you're setting traps that are plausible, but um, incorrect. Um, but there's also like a secondary competition between myself and Frank, where we try and outdo each other. And you know, sometimes some people are like like it's it's quite fun because I get to be like a like we're like a cheeky version of myself because like aha, we trapped you, we got you in our, in our claws. <laughs> and and so it's, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a pantomime. But the thing about the show is, even for seasoned quizzers, they're not going to like absolutely nail the show because I Frank and I had to research. Our traps. There's some things that like immediately sprung to mind, but other times we would spend time looking at Pokemon characters, Greek myth, and see things that might trigger an, a thought. So it took a significant amount of investment of effort as trappers to create the traps. Because it's not about just being devious. I enjoyed the fact that the traps had an entertaining story behind them. You're spot on because it can't just be going, nope. Um, R2-D2 from Star Wars, full stop. You need a little bit of chat to explain. And again, sometimes, like with editing, we said some wonderful stories and they got cut down to like 10 seconds because of the episode was brilliant, so they, they didn't have time for everything. But that's part of the joy of the show is the reveal. And that's where people that are seasoned quizzes or not seasoned quizzes will find out something interesting. So I think that, like, I, I, I even now to this day, I have this spreadsheet where they find something, a fascinating fact. I, I, I add this to it so that when I come to writing, hopefully future traps for a future season, if we get recommissioned at some stage, I've got it there because 
setting traps of season one was a, was a proper labor of love to work out. Because again, each episode would have maybe, I'm trying to work out like 30 traps. If you think about it, each if each one just takes 10 minutes of research, because it can take a while to research, corroborate, that's 300 minutes, that's five hours. And that's if you're efficient and you know what you're looking for. But if you're having to look up a new topic like American football teams, to find plausible traps takes effort. So actually it's one of those shows where like I've watched... Like, I almost like jealously watch things like The Chase now because I love The Chase. And for them, they just rely on their bank of knowledge and they answer questions. So they just turn up, as it were, being fresh and ready. Oh, we've got to put hours of effort into the show, which is what makes it, which sort of creates the joy as well. Were there any traps that you, you laid that, that when it went away to get verified and it came back, they sort of went, no, actually, there, there is a, a a Swedish member of the oh. Muppet show that's, that is actually called Oh, God. This, so. this thing is, I can't think of a specific incident, unfortunately, but we had a massive spreadsheet with 30 tabs for each of the episodes. And the aim would be, we'd do episode one, episode two, and then the verifiers would go and check facts. And I would say every couple, every two or three episodes, they would come back and say, aha, we found an obscure Swedish pop artist who actually was a Pokemon character as well. And there are ones where, and I think with this is, we were not meant to try and deliberately trick them. It's meant to be like a clever reveal, but not like, imagine one of the questions is um, uh, players that played in the England World Cup final in 1966. In fact, it was one of the categories. Um, so we had 10, 10 players that played in 1966. And the six couldn't have been people that were in the squad that didn't make it that day, because that's a bit mean. So they had to be sort of like, it could be the name of the mascot. And that's quite a clever. Thing. I've heard of I've heard of that person. Can't remember the name of the mascot now, but I've heard of that. And they think, oh, but it's a mascot. But it's if it's something that's deliberately like just like on the edge of truth, it's not. Yeah, it's not meant to trick them. It's meant to be like, oh, you're thinking of something else. So we definitely had occasions where the verifiers. And to be honest, the verifiers it's really it's like a proper skill because there are times that I thought I researched things. And obviously, I've learned like Wikipedia is not apparently. A, I love Wikipedia, but you have to find out where Wikipedia got it from, and then they verify it from there. So it's quite unusual, actually, for the two people on the show to have done all the research themselves. So you, did, you didn't have a big team of answer writers or question writers. No. So to, so to give credit to the team, they set the answer, the, the correct answers. And obviously, we could tell them, actually, we should add um, certain topics more in just to make sure they're more representative of society, etc. But the traps were our responsibility it was our job if you're struggling with something we could ask them hey guys do you have any suggestions of thoughts we can look up but it was our responsibility and of course because we are the ones explaining on television we took personal pride and responsibility making sure and i think that's probably quite there aren't again i i maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong but i can't i don't think of many shows where the person on the set who's explaining it is responsible for the research for it as well. And that's what I think, that's what people like about Frank and myself, because we are people that enjoy quiz, that are quizzes, but we're also people that enjoy doing the research side of it, the, the geeky side, that often you get, you know, the, the quiz, you know, in another world, I might be a quiz question writer. So uh, after 30 episodes, uh, which Trapper won? Oh my God, this is this is actually the, the best thing ever. So it, it was not planned. So like, um, there are times where Frank went ahead, I went ahead, and genuinely, it came down to the last episode. So we both won 14, drew one. So it's, it's and the scores were tied. And then I think the last episode, let me get this correct. I I ended up winning by two points. So we both won 14 episodes each, drew two episodes, and I won by two traps. 
You could not make it up. Wow. You genuinely couldn't make it. So it shows that even though Frank, because Frank is a brilliant, if anyone's not heard of Frank Paul, he won't only connect the season after me. Um, he is a lovely way of explaining things, but he's a devious. He genuinely is a ge- devious, a genius, a genius, devious, devious, genius. <laughs> he is. A, he comes out with the most like insane traps that like require like three dimensional chess in your mind. My traps are, are a bit more, uh, a bit more obvious, but they're quite, they're quite entertaining as well. But for, and I thought, uh, is that, is it going to be clear? Someone runs away. Is it my obvious traps or Frank's more multi-dimensional layer? But in the end, we were literally neck and neck and two traps to have two people tying exactly and one person winning in the end by goal difference by two is astonishing. <laughs> people think we like manufacture, but no, that was genuinely the way it fell out. So we we hear that Jeremy Paxman is uh, beginning to slow down uh, mm. in his broadcasting career. If he were to step down from University Challenge, who do you think should present it? Uh, just have a look. So there's Kirsty Walk out there. There's Fiona Bruce. No, no, none of them. <laughs> none of them. Um, so the thing is, so growing up as a child, University Challenge wasn't a thing for me. I was aware of it. You know, I never watched a single episode. But after my time at Emmanuel, captaining the team. It's now actually become, a, it's, to be honest, it's, it's, it's an intrinsic part of my identity. Uh, and obviously we've had Paxman, no, Bamba Gas going from 62 to 87. And he was much more of a schoolmaster, a bit more of a, ge- I like, a, bit more of a gentleman like Paxman from 94. He's, he's mellowed a bit, but he was very stern. And I'm not like that, but I'm more like Bamba Gas going. So genuinely, when, when it does come available... I want, I want to be. That's like literally my dream job. Like there are other things. Like I'm sure over time. Like I'm hoping. Like I don't do things like strictly, and I'm a celebrity. All the stuff that the invert. I hate the word celebrity, but inverted commas celebrities get to do. But for me, there'll be no greater honor than being the host of Universal Challenge. And like honestly, like. But- wouldn't you find it frustrating though that like you, you read out a question and you get eight blank faces in front of you and you're sort of going, guys, I you know this, this is easy. Why are you not buzzing? I, I I I can definitely see why that might happen, but I think because I'm a teacher, a school teacher, and because actually one of my, I would say my greatest trait as a math teacher, I'm very patient. I'm like, okay, let's 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 find a way. Like what was like Bamba did. Like Bamba really got angry. Paxman used to like, oh, that's ridiculous, and of course. In my lessons, when students say ridiculous answers, I will still call them out on that. Honestly, that is a where on earth did you make it up? I'm I'm happy to call them out where they have been exceedingly stupid for a question. But I don't do it in a cruel way. I never cruel. I do it in a sort of like you know, in a positive, let's try and get better. So I think I will blend elements of Paxman. I'm not gonna be like Paxman at all, but I'm gonna be more like, come on, you can do better, guys. But it's, it's not kind of like, guys, we did this three weeks ago. <laughs> do you not remember? Oh, if I, if it, Friday <laughs> afternoon, maybe you get that way. But generally, but one thing that I know that Bamba did, he had this reputation of being omniscient. And part of it was because he, for his question cards, he would read them before and make little annotations. Read and them, I know yeah. the nature of television, people don't have time for that. And obviously, there's no budget for, a, for, the, for the host to do that. But okay, if I can get the budget for it, great. But if I can't, I would still, my own personal pride, I will try and get the question cards beforehand and read the questions. A, for the pronunciation of words like polypeptides and whatever. But secondly, I want to be able to know what the answer is and have a little alternate. So sometimes if they get if they mention Keats instead of Shelley, I can say, I can see why I thought it was Keats. I love the idea of being a host. Well, you don't do it at the whole show. It's not about you, the host. But I love the idea of being able to throw in bits of knowledge. So I think definitely it's something that I, I'd love to put my name out there. When it comes out, if in a few years you listen to this podcast, I'm willing to be that host that will actually do extra research to give your show an extra bit of oomph. 
Well, I think that was the the, the best audition for the part that I've <laughs> ever heard. So uh, let, let's hope the powers that be are listening. If not, we'll, we'll make sure they have been. <laughs> Um, so last of all, I know you've got some exciting uh, TV projects coming up uh, next year. Uh, what can you tell us about them? Ooh, okay, so there's some that I can tell you and some that have to be very cryptic. Um, so I film Would I Lie to You, Celebrity Points. I think they're both coming out in January time. Um, there is a reality show that I'm taking part in next year. And the thing is, the, your, your audience are too smart. If I put in any references, they're like, I know what it is. But put it this way, nobody puts Bobby in the right angle of a quadrilateral. That's the only clue. If anyone can work out what that means, that might give you a little clue. Um, <laughs> but I'm taking part in a reality show next year. And this involves mainstream personalities like pop stars, reality stars, uh, comedians, YouTubers, actors. And it's the first time I'm stepping out from working directly with... Um, academics or geeky people like me or quiz shows. And but the thing that I like is that in this show, and I think in future shows I do, I'm always gonna I'm gonna be proudly happy to be the geek. Because that's why I am. I love the idea that I'm a person that loves learning, loves knowledge, but shares it with people in a sort of fun, cheeky way. And hopefully that will come out. And I hope this is the start of start of things like uh, these opportunities will turn up, but I want to make sure that whatever opportunities I get, I use it as a platform to talk more about education. Because the way the world works is even if I was an excellent school teacher, if I, as a head of maths department, which I used to be, went to the media and said, I want to talk about this new scheme on times tables or making sure every child at the age of five has 20 books that they're given, they'd be like, great idea, but who are you? Why should we talk to you? But if you have a profile like, like Jamie Oliver did with changing meals in schools, people will then listen to you. So I think you have a greater voice in education if you have that inverted commas celebrity profile. So I think if I can do both, do the the celebrity world but still be a real teacher that for me that's the intersection you know we talked about football intersection maths actually that's the greatest one a teacher intersection profile personality that sweet spot there that's the dream for me great well bobby seagull maths teacher thank you very much <laughs> indeed oh an absolute pleasure and I, i'm going to continue listening to your podcast i absolutely love it And Bobby has a rather specific item to show and tell us later in the show. But now it's time for our hot topic. And we're grateful to Jonathan Cresswell for this suggestion. He wants to know about play-along in formats. How do you incorporate play-along when developing a new show and then producing and editing it later? So when we're talking about play-along, we're talking about what people shouting at the screen? or Let's think about the different ways that you can play along. So vote and try and affect the outcome in things. And the most obvious play-along is questions. Mm -hmm. um, so every quiz show has an element of play-along to it, and a woe betide anyone who creates a, a quiz show or a game show without play-along, because I can tell you from experience that when you get to the edit, the commissioning editor will start talking about play-along then. And if you haven't baked it in in the first place, then you have a problem. I think it's quite interesting what happens with the play along of questions because, you know, if you're trying to bake it into a format, then you really do have to think about how the audience is going to play, if you like, as a contestant. So, for example, if you're going to put those questions on screen, you need to avoid really long questions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the whole idea of multiple choice really evolved from the simplicity of putting, you know, a single question and multiple answers on the screen or having one big question and multiple short ones. You can often see which shows have thought about the screen real estate 
because ones where they haven't thought about it too well, they have to cut up an entire full frame graphic yep. of the entire question. Whereas ones that have thought about it a bit more, they've accommodated faces in the picture. So, for example, there was a show called A Thousand Heartbeats, yeah, uh, where they had the left hand side was for the puzzles and the questions, and the right hand side was like a a medium shot of the contestants. No, it works really well. Something also to consider is that a lot of people don't watch a quiz show when it's on in the house. You know, particularly in that kind of between five and seven p.m. sort of slot in European countries. Uh, a lot of European countries, it's it's quite traditional to have a quiz on between six and seven, which is during the time when people have got in from home and before they watch the news at seven. You do need to imagine that a proportion of your viewers are wandering around. They've got their back to the TV. They don't have a TV in the kitchen or whatever, and they're still sort of playing along. It's something that I've heard at least two commissioners say. Assume that people are not watching the television because they, they they just think, well, people are either chopping up onions or making tea or... or... Yeah. And another thing to take into account is the speed of reply as well. Because if you want people to play along at home, you need to give them time to think about the answer. And if you have very fast question and answer going on with contestants who probably are smarter or who are more aware of the... Topic than the viewer is, um, then there simply isn't time for the viewer to answer the question. On a university challenge, what they do is they they put up the picture on the screen for picture questions several seconds before the people in the studio have actually seen it, uh-huh. so that at least the viewers can have a chance of recognizing what it is. Also, on the topic of giving the audience a chance, there is what I call the Wheel of Fortune principle, mm-hmm. which is that on the classic game show Wheel of Fortune as you spin the wheel and you call out letters and the letters get filled up on the board, um, it's actually part of the format that you are rewarded with more points or more dollars or more prizes for keeping on spinning. So even if it says, like, the leaning tour of the... And, and the audience are going, well, clearly it's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Why are they still spinning for extra letters? Well, it's because it's the format is rewarding mm. them. That is very clever. But how do you get play along into a show like The The Apprentice, where you can't physically go out and try and negotiate half a ton of squid? So in things like The Apprentice, you're judging whether these people can actually become The Apprentice, and that's a that's a much more rounded judgment, if you like. And frankly, we are also judging people's character all the time. So on a lot of reality shows, people are set up, people are cast, people are filmed, people are edited to encourage the viewer to get involved by just simply judging them as people. Now it's time for you to play along as we have another round of the game that's sweeping the nation, fake or format. (laughs) This week, Justin's got two shows to tell me about. One is a real show and the other he's completely made up. And I have to decide which is which. So take it away. So this is the first one. It's a show called Three Wise Men. And in it, a female singleton has to decide which of three men to date based on the gift that they bring to her stable. (laughs) So the gifts can be big or small or very elegant or outrageous. But will the wisest choice of gift win the girl? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's the first nice one. one. The second one is Three's a Crowd. Mm-hmm. So we have a male contestant. He's asked three quite personal questions. Then his wife is asked the same set of questions. And then his secretary is asked the same set of questions. So which of the two ladies in his life knows him best? Mm. So there we have it. Three wise men or three's a crowd. I do like the three wise men thing. I do think that's very possible. But there is something about... I'm guessing like the 1950s or the 1960s, like the real sort of classic Mad Men era where every middle manager would have had a dedicated secretary Mm -hmm. and you would probably spend quite a lot of time together. I've got a feeling that that is horribly (laughs) possible. So I'm going to plump for that one. Ah, You are correct. Damn it. Um, Yes, there was indeed. It was created by Chuck Barris, uh, who was the host of The Gong Show. He created the dating game, or what we call Blind Date, and the Newlywed Game, which was the follow-on from the dating game. Basically, there was a huge backlash, I'm very pleased to say, to the show. Mm. Um, It was cancelled after one series, and more than that, it, they actually cancelled all three of Chuck Barris's other shows as well. Wow, harsh. Well, the the, the backlash affected the ratings of those shows so much. Ah. And so within a year, the gong show, the dating game, and the newlywed game had all gone as well. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, and poor Chuck Barris holed himself up in his beach house in Malibu, which is... <laughs> must have been awful. I know, <laughs> the tragedy of it. <laughs> This was 1979, and it was cancelled in 1980. Oh, really? As late as that? Wow. Yeah, so it wasn't the kind of 50s business. Oh. Rather weirdly, a, a little coda to this story is that um, having been held up in his mansion in Malibu, uh, Chuck Barris decided to use his time writing a, a mock biography <laughs> called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And in fact, that was then later adapted into a movie in 2002 called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Wow. Gosh, that's a great story. Yeah. Huh. I'd like to think I know a bit about game shows, but that's a, a completely new story to me. Great. Good well, stuff. Very well, very good. It still means you're 3-0 down. I mean, not that I'm counting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's plenty of time, David. There's plenty of time. It'll be my turn to see if I can uh, fool Justin next time. So now it's time for Show and Tell. We're back with Bobby Siegel, and we asked people to bring something to show and tell us. So what have you brought that's uh, of interest? So the thing I actually wanted to bring, something called a Klein bottle. I don't have it, Amy. It's my, it's my dad's house. But I've got something which has the Klein bottle. So here is a pencil case, which you can see. So during our time on University Challenge... Um, we had lots of, yeah, again, it was a strange season with Eric Monker and myself. There were lots of fans, and they made fan memorabilia. T-shirts, phone covers, duvet covers. And I bought a few of the things. One of the things I bought was I bought this pencil case that they made of our team. But the reason I bought, bought this is, okay, you're normally allowed one mascot, but we had three mascots. One, we had um, uh, Ellie the pink duck, because our college has loads of ducks in the manual. Then we had Manny the blue lion, because we have a lion in our crest. 
So Manny and Ellie, almost like Emmanuel. But the last thing I bought with me is I was doing my master's at the same time as doing my um, uh, time on university challenge and teaching. One of my students in year eight made a three-dimensional Klein bottle for me. It's almost a bit like if anyone's heard of the Mobius strip, you know, the thing where you've got a strip that if you, you can bend a piece of paper and you're uh, still on the same side, but you can go round and round and round. A Klein bottle is a sort of an example of that. It's a non-orientable surface, but I won't get into that. But the reason I love that is it almost represents me in the sense of it's, a, it's, it's something that I had in a quiz show, but I brought it onto the quiz show because I wanted my students to say, I, I might be on telly, but I'm still thinking of you. I'm still your math teacher. Um, One of my math teachers actually made a Klein bottle out of an old pair of his trousers. Ooh. So uh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, but what was what was your climb bottle made out My of? My student actually he's managed to 3D print it. I'm not sure how he did that. Um he's now actually my actually he's one of my first ever students. He's now at Oxford studying. So obviously, like I'm so I'm very proud of him. I'm hoping one day he might be on university challenge as well. But thank you. I'll say it. thank you, Oscar Paul, very enthusiastic student for making that climb well, bottle. That's brilliant. Well, uh, thank you for showing us your climb <laughs> bottle, Bobby. And that's all we can cram into this week's action-packed show. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us on contact at tvshowandtell.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we do here, please do like, subscribe, follow, poke, heart, share, comment, and review wherever possible. We're searchable on all the major podcast providers under the title TV Show and Tell. Do let us know if we're missing from your platform of choice. Uh, do join us next time for more facts and fun about the TV industry. Until then, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>